Welcome to our final episode in this series of Natural Capital, or Fast Sounds. I'm Rachel Smiley and today we are joined by Professor Mark Weed to discuss ecosystem markets, including green finance and green commerce. You can listen back to all of the other episodes in the series which covered an intro to natural capital, peatlands, Scotland's rainforests, seaweed and arable topics. These episodes are available wherever you normally get your podcasts from. Please like, follow and subscribe and leave us a review. Coming up on this episode, we will be covering an area that has come up a lot in previous episodes and something that gains a lot of interest, green finance, including funding and revenue options for natural capital and importantly, what are the risks and future opportunities for agriculture and landowners in Scotland. Investing in nature can help to improve our environment, drive a green economy, tackle global issues such as climate change and make the world a better place for both society and biodiversity. It's a big topic and we are lucky to be joined by Mark today to try and make sense of it all. Mark is a Professor of Rural Entrepreneurship and Co-Director of the Thriving Natural Capital Challenge Centre at Scotland's Rural College. He's a transdisciplinary researcher specialising in environmental governance, ecosystem markets and research impact. He is a visiting professor at several universities, CEO of Fast Track Impact, research lead for the IUCN UK Peatland Programme, where he sits on the executive board of the Peatland Code and is also co-chair of UNEP's Global Peatland Initiative Research Working Group. Hi Mark, thanks for joining us. So I think the first question that can kick us off is, can you and should you put a financial value on nature? And what would the value of that be to Scotland? Yeah, uh, so there, there are very different ways that we can think about this. And I think that, that this question for me uh, raises some of the critiques. And I think it's worth addressing some of these head on. Uh, so um, I, I've blogged against George Monbiot in The Guardian uh, on this particular issue. And he's one of many people who argue that we should not put a for sale sign on nature, that natural capital ecosystem markets uh, are effectively privatizing uh, a public good and that this is fundamentally wrong. Um, and if this were the case, then I would, uh, then I would agree uh, with him. Uh, but I would argue that this is for any landowner, uh, admitting that you are the landowner. <laughs> uh, so this is a, a private uh, good um, in terms of what you are producing from that land, that uh, the carbon, the water, the flood risk alleviation benefits, uh, the biodiversity uh, is one of many different products that you can produce from that piece of land. Uh, and we can produce food um, uh, with lots of negative externalities, as uh, the economists would call them, uh, with pollution, for example, and things that society is going to have to pay to clean up. Uh, and of course, uh, the, the, the greenhouse gas emissions in particular are, are what uh, are exercising a lot of us at the moment. Uh, or I can change to more regenerative farming practices and by doing so, uh, produce less of these uh, these negative outcomes that society would have to pay for uh, anyway, because the, the costs of climate change uh, are significant. Um, and instead, I, I can save the public purse uh, that, um, and I can do uh, wider goods and get wider benefits for, say, downstream communities who are going to be less affected by flooding or, uh, or, or for, for the wildlife in, in my area. 
But uh, the, the question that, that farmers and other landowners rightly ask is, well, great, but to do that uh, may require me to extensify, uh, to produce less. Uh, there are going to be opportunity costs here, and who's going to pay for that? And uh, and whilst uh, we might say, well, of course, we're everyone's going to do what's right uh, for for society, for the environment, uh, and of course, none of us are purposefully doing what's wrong. When it goes, when it comes to going that extra mile uh, for for most of us uh, to make that stack up in terms of what are often very precarious farm businesses, I need this to pay. And so this is why increasingly we are looking a to governments to pay for the public goods that come from from agriculture and other forms of land use. And where that is not enough, uh, and there is a very significant uh, gap between the amount of money that we need versus the amount of money that is available and committed from public funding, and this is uh, an amount in the, million, in the billions, uh, to, to plug that gap, we're going to need additional funding to make this happen. And that's where markets can come in. Uh, but I think where people then instantly get worried is, well, great, but how do we control those markets? And if we just allow the markets to run amok, uh, then potentially we get a whole lot of negative, unintended consequences. And in Scotland at the moment, we're seeing this uh, when it comes to uh, to woodland carbon markets, uh, a bunch of investors, pension funds in particular, looking over those kind of time horizons, you figure, yeah, a background increase in the in the in the price of land combined with uh, the timber price, combined then with uh, with carbon markets through the Woodland Carbon Code. This looks like a very attractive proposition, and I am willing to pay substantial amounts of money money for this. So. Um, in uh, 2021 alone, we saw a 58% increase in the value of plantable hill land uh, and a 60% um, increase in uh, extensive livestock uh, grazing land, uh, primarily because of people wanting to buy that up to plant. Uh, what happens in terms of uh, food sovereignty uh, is one question. Uh, I'm not instantly worried about that. This is not happening at a scale and at a speed that's going to threaten that. But uh, what happens in terms of local communities, um, uh, this is, I would argue, something more significant that we need to think about. And then what about the biodiversity? It depends. Well, what are the trees? What's being replaced by this stuff? Uh, and, and how can we design markets to dovetail with the incentives that we're now designing uh, post-Brexit uh, from the public purse so that we can do this in a way which is organized, which is planned, and which is going to have many co-benefits for nature and for communities, and yet is worth people's while when it comes to farm businesses. And. Is there any restrictions at the moment in place for people that are purchasing land, maybe to plant trees and take advantage of the green finance that's available, especially to, like, to the detriment of like, Scottish communities that are also wanting to purchase the land? Is there any restrictions in place about who can buy the land? Yeah, so I'm not a forestry expert. Um, the, if you look at the Woodland Carbon Code, you have to do an environmental impact assessment. You have to do um, stakeholder engagement. Uh, the stakeholder engagement guidance is going to get beefed up uh, shortly in the Woodland Carbon Code. It has been beefed up already in the Peatland Code. So there is an expectation that you will consult with um, uh, the, the people around the, the land. Uh, this is not just about you getting to, to buy this and do whatever you want with this. 
Um, I would say that for Woodland at the moment, that's fairly lax. Um, but as I said, it's going to, there's going to be a lot um, more required in future uh, in line with uh, what you can see in version 1.2 of the Peatland Code, uh, requiring evidence that you have, in fact, uh, not only spoken to these people, uh, these are their concerns, this is how the concerns have, in fact, been addressed. Um, my understanding, I'm not a planning expert or a woodland expert, my understanding is that there are certain circumstances where planning regulations will apply. Um, and so take advice on that to make sure that um, that, that, that doesn't apply to your land. But uh, primarily, uh, if you're doing this for carbon and it's about woodlands, then these are the guidance, uh, the guidelines in the um, uh, in, in the woodlands, in the woodland code. Um, so as I said, we've got um, the stakeholder engagement, the environmental impact assessment um, that, that is required for this. But increasingly, if you look at carbon markets internationally, this is going a step further now. And this is where I think the future is headed. And both the Woodland Carbon Code and the Peatland Code are looking at not just the stipulation that, that, that there should be no net harm uh, when you create a, car, a forest for carbon or restore a peat bog for carbon, but that there should be a net environmental benefit and potentially a net social benefit, which is where the, the, the local communities and, and such like come in as well. Um, and actually being able to demonstrate exactly what that benefit is going to be uh, at validation when you're setting up your project, but also then verifying that. Uh, and increasingly, international schemes now are not allowing you to release those carbon units at verification points until you can demonstrate that there has been that net environmental and or social benefit. Uh, there's a number of uh, initiatives going on at the moment. Um, uh, there is uh, the International Carbon Markets Voluntary Task Force, or whatever it is, ICVCM. Uh, Google that, you'll work out what it is. <laughs> uh, they're trying to, to bring a level of, level of standardization and leveling up across carbon markets internationally. Um, uh, their, their guidelines uh, are out for consultation at the moment. They've had quite a lot of pushback because they are raising the bar very substantially and across the board without any kind of context sensitivity. Uh, but this is one of the things that they're thinking about bringing in. Um, in the UK, we're thinking about how we can uh, how we can do this uh, in terms of that kind of standardization and leveling up. Uh, and DEFRA are developing a, an ecosystem market framework. Scottish government are directly feeding into that. Uh, and I would argue of the four UK nations, it is Scotland and England that uh, are ahead of the game. Um, uh, I was at a, a G7 uh, webinar recently on this, uh, comparing notes across G7 countries, and it's clear that uh, that we are leading the G7 as well in terms of uh, the sophistication and rigor that we are demanding of our carbon markets, and that's only going to be getting more rigorous as, uh, as we move forward and develop these policy and governance mechanisms to ensure that when you pay for carbon, you get carbon. It is real, verifiable, it's additional. Uh, and uh, there's no double counting uh, and that, uh, that you have to demonstrate that you've done everything you can to reduce emissions at source. These are only your final residual emissions and we're not using these markets to greenwash. And what other things should farmers and landowners be aware when they do want to sell their carbon? And what, like, what are the opportunities and what are the threats to them? Yeah, so I would say that there are a number of risks at this point. Um, 
So uh, we need to look by market. Um, and, uh, and so where you can do this relatively risk-free, uh, I would argue, are our two most established carbon markets, which are the Peatland Code and the Woodland Carbon Code. Depending on whether you want to plant trees, whether you've got peat bogs that need to be restored, that may or may not be uh, open to you. But there are a number of new markets that are evolving. So um, uh, Hannah and I, I know you've interviewed her already uh, earlier in the season, uh, we're contributing to the development of soil carbon markets. Um, uh, I, I'm also on teams working towards uh, an agroforestry carbon code, a salt marsh code, uh, there's a hedgerow code may be coming down the line. Uh, the latest intelligence I have on this is um, it may or may not be open for business um, publicly, uh, but uh, the methods at least will be there. Uh, and um, we're, we're going to be talking about uh, whether or not that is uh, integrated in some way with the agroforestry code. So we've got all these new carbon codes coming down the line. We've also got uh, biodiversity, water schemes um, coming down the line. We already have um, voluntary biodiversity markets uh, in Scotland. Uh, in England, we've got compliance biodiversity markets uh, where developers can uh, then uh, offset and they can do that offsite, which involves habitat creation. We're looking at developing something similar in Scotland, um, although that is very much work in progress and Hannah's uh, contributing to, to a project that's, that's dealing with that. So, uh, great, we've got lots of different carbon markets, we've got other ecosystem markets, um, uh, and where you can do this relatively risk-free, and I'll emphasize why only relatively, would be uh, peatlands and, um, and, uh, and woodlands. Uh, and, uh, and I think the key thing that most farmers are talking about are the agricultural soil carbon markets. Um, we've all got soil, uh, and we're managing that, uh, that resource. Uh, and if we do so in a way that can sequester and then long-term lock away that carbon in the soil, then there are many people telling us now, well, that's, that's worth money, and, uh, and you should be doing something about that. Uh, and so the, the, the advice that, uh, that I'm giving to, to farmers is uh, to, to do your homework. Uh, there are a number of schemes that are currently open for business in the UK. Uh, the Farmers Weekly recently ran a, um, a review of six of those. Um, and, um, and I'll say there's nothing wrong with any of the six that they have reviewed. Uh, they, uh, they vary uh, in their quality. Uh, and there are some that they didn't review that I would definitely not go with, although I would uh, not name names at this point. Uh, but the point is that there is variable quality uh, in terms of what is, uh, what is out there. And if you end up going for a carbon scheme that is on the lower end of that quality spectrum, then the danger is that uh, the, the methods that are being used are, uh, are not sufficiently accurate to pick up the carbon that you, are, um, that you are actually sequestering and storing, and so you don't get the credit for it. Uh, or worst case scenario, uh, you uh, sell carbon that actually isn't there. Uh, and later on, people come back and say, actually, I'm not happy with this. Uh, you didn't actually do what you said. Uh, you overclaimed. I want my money back. And so you need to, to look very carefully, uh, not only at your contracts, but at the way these schemes are designed and how they manage risk. So, for example, is there a, a pooled risk buffer, uh, which means that all of their projects have to reserve an amount of carbon that goes into a pool that then, if your project fails for any reason that's not your own, uh, you can still meet the commitments that, uh, that, that you have made to any buyers uh, and, uh, and you can use that buffer uh, carbon instead. So there, there, there are a, a range of different um, qualities uh, in terms of the, how 
uh, these schemes operate and how they manage risk and how exposed you might be to risk. So the first advice is if you want to go into solar carbon markets, uh, do your research on those companies uh, in terms of the, the scheme them itself, in addition to the contracts that you might be signing to try and reduce the risk as far as possible. But there is another risk. Uh, which is that uh, increasingly uh, the the people that we are supplying, the people who are buying our products, uh, are looking at uh, their scope three emissions. So the emissions that are coming out of their supply chains, and they're asking themselves, how can we be, be net zero? Uh, and that includes uh, having our farms net zero uh, and the products that we're getting from those farms uh, certified as being net zero, or at least reducing the emissions as far as possible. Um, and we're early days with this at the moment. So the uh, the, the first movers in this um, are typically, as you would expect in a market like this, the more ethical companies, the supermarkets, for example, who are saying, right, we want to be net zero by 2040, whatever it might be. Um, and that's going to include our scope three emissions. And to do that, we're going to work with our farmers. And, uh, and the responsible approach is to say, uh, great, and we will now give you a price premium uh, based on the level of... Uh, greenhouse gas uh, abatement that you can supply alongside those uh, those products. Um, the risk, the danger, and and uh, and what we don't know is uh, as more players come into this market, more people jump on this bandwagon and say, uh, right, we want to do this uh, as well. Uh, will they give us a price premium for doing so? Or will they simply make this yet another condition on our contracts? Uh, if you want to keep your contract, you now have to do this uh, and supply a certain amount of, of greenhouse gas abatement alongside this. Um, and um, and for some of us, depending on the nature of our farm business, that, that's harder for us than it is for others. We are not all created equal, and so it's really important um, as a message to, uh, to 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 the supermarkets and others who are doing this that you can't just do a one size fits all approach to this. Uh, but um, but the problem is that uh, if I have been um, an early adopter of one of these schemes and I have already sold all of the uh, the the carbon sequestration and greenhouse gas emission reductions that I can possibly get to a third party, then that is no longer available for me to give to my buyer. And that could, in a worst case scenario, mean that I lose a contract. Uh, and that's yeah, for some farm businesses, that's that's the end. So, so I, I, I'm maybe overplaying this, but I think it's important to emphasize the risks. Um, and in that worst case scenario, that would be an, an existential um, threat. Uh, so, so what can you do if you want to to move into these markets already? Um, uh, so the first thing is that you need to look very carefully at your contracts. And so do everything you can to check the schemes, check the contracts, manage risk. But the second thing that you can do, and this is part of what you do in terms of signing your contracts, is, yeah, uh, I am willing to do all of this work to reduce the carbon, that, that uh, the, the emissions to, to sequester carbon. But uh, I'm very careful about the ultimate ownership of those carbon units. And instead of signing contracts that effectively forward sell, if that's allowed, usually it's not, um, or as that carbon comes to a verification, this is now committed somewhere, uh, you're trying to hold on to that for yourself. And that then means that you keep your options open. And why you might want to start thinking about this seriously uh, is that uh, depending on when you want to start doing this work, you're going to need the baseline 
all of that data ready so that you can show clearly I did this and I've made a difference. So uh, whether you do this through an existing scheme and just look at your contracts and make sure that you hold on to those rights, um, uh, or whether this is that, uh, that you're going to hold off and not go into any scheme yet, uh, it is important to start thinking about this uh, and doing that baseline. And we've got in Scotland the National Test Programme, which is giving us funding to do this. So I would instantly recommend looking at that, trying to get the funding to get that carbon baseline. And the good news is that uh, most of these schemes uh, will allow retrospective registration of projects up to five years previously. So uh, that then so gives you a kind of a five-year grace period uh, to say, right, I've done the baselining. Uh, hopefully this is good enough, whatever scheme I want to go into. Uh, and then I'll make my own mind up as to when I actually go into this, but I'm going to start the work now uh, and, and keep track of this and keep more measuring that baseline as that changes, uh, as that changes over time. Um, but when it ultimately comes to it, uh, I get to choose. I've got that carbon. Yeah, I can sell that as an offset to a third party. Uh, I can uh, hold on to that uh, for longer and wait, or I can build that into a contract uh, for an insetter, a, a company who wants to buy my product with some carbon abatement attached to it. So, um, yeah, look at your contracts, look at the quality of the scheme. Um, and uh, and and yeah, don't just wait and do nothing because the climate crisis demands attention now, but make sure you've got a baseline and you measure what you do. One final thing that I'm going to say is that you might want to have a look at um, uh, wait if you're going into a scheme until there is a, uh, an accreditation scheme for soil carbon codes. So what we have in the UK at the moment is a number of companies that effectively have their own carbon codes. They've got the governance components, they've got the measurement, verification, reporting components uh, in there. Um, and as I said, they're a variable quality. Uh, and what our colleagues uh, and I have been doing is working with our government colleagues to create the first set of minimum requirements for agricultural soil carbon codes. Uh, that is going to be owned and operated by an arm's length body. I'm not at liberty yet to say who that is going to be on behalf of all four UK governments uh, to then check the quality of these codes and schemes. And what I would recommend uh, if you are going into a scheme is wait until that happens. I don't have a date for when this is going to be out there, um, but you can go on to the uh, Soil Association website to see version one of the minimum requirements. And um, so you get a sense of what a good scheme looks like. Uh, yeah, has it checked all of these boxes? And you could do this yourself already just by by comparing uh, what you're being offered against these minimum requirements. Uh, but hopefully sometimes next year, this will then be owned and operated by this arm's length body and you'll be able to see, uh, has this scheme got the tick yet? Uh, and if it has, you know that it has gone through a very rigorous process of checks and balances to make sure that this is rigorous, it's real, it's, 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 it's gonna manage risk for you, hopefully. Brilliant, thanks. And we'll list all the links that Mark has mentioned in the show notes of the podcast. Um, we know about the carbon credits and we know the benefits that peatland restoration does for biodiversity and you've mentioned biodiversity credits. Is there a risk of double counting for someone that wants to sell carbon credits and then when biodiversity credits come out, they sell that off as well for the same bit of land? Mm. So you're not allowed to double count, and the way that is managed is through the additionality tests that are built into the, the codes themselves. 
And so when we're looking at uh, what makes a, a, a high integrity code, we look in part at those additionality tests. Um, and so uh, all um, codes will have a legal additionality test. So if this was required by law and you had to do this anyway, you can't then do that to meet some regulatory requirement uh, or uh, compensation, uh, compensatory planting as, as part of planning regulations, for example. You can't then do that and then say, oh, and I want to sell the carbon because it would have happened anyway. The person who is buying that is buying something that is not additional. It would have happened uh, their money did not make that happen, so you're you're conning them basically. Uh, so uh, it's not allowed. Um, and you mentioned biodiversity, so very specifically for the compliance market, which is known as biodiversity net gain in England, uh, both the Woodland Carbon Code and the Peatland Code have ruled this out and have said um, that biodiversity net gain projects are not additional. No matter how much extra carbon you get from that biodiversity net gain site, you cannot count that and claim that and sell that through the Woodland Carbon Code or the Peatland Code because it breaks that legal additionality test. It's a compliance market. Uh, the, the, the developer is required to do this. If they don't do it on-site, they're doing it off-site. They've chosen to do it off-site. They have to do this. So that carbon, it would have happened anyway, uh, and it would be dishonest to try and claim otherwise and sell that. There are other tests, um, and the most important in the UK market uh, would be the investment test which essentially says that, uh, that this is something that would not have been possible, would not have happened if there were not carbon finance. And that's not to say that the whole project is funded privately. So uh, in the Peatland Code, for example, uh, you, uh, as with the Woodland Carbon Code as well, in fact, uh, you will have uh, your public grants to plant to do the capital works for your restoration. Uh, but as long as at least 15% of your overall costs um, are from, from private finance uh, then you can claim this as additional uh, and as having passed that uh, that test uh, and uh, and so that then uh, means that we're also then looking at uh, say commercial projects so in particular for for forestry if uh, this stacked up in terms of the business case based on uh, the the value of the land and uh, and the commodity price commodity price for that timber alone uh, of course you're going to do this this makes good business sense um, and uh, and if you didn't need the carbon finance uh, then you shouldn't then claim that carbon finance and try and sell that uh, and that is actually becoming increasingly challenging as a test to pass for forestry given what's happening to uh, to timber prices but uh, they have an additionality tool that helps calculate that all out for you on the woodland carbon code website just going on to nature restoration and a lot of our um, topics so far focused on different types of habitats so Scotland's rainforest, peatlands and arable. And money is tight right now for everyone. And if farms aren't profitable, it's hard for them to be green. And if we are wanting landowners to invest in nature restoration and biodiversity improvements or protecting natural capital assets on their land, is there money for this nature restoration at the moment in terms of green finance or private finance? Uh, so short answer is yes. Um... We've uh, we've talked about carbon markets primarily. You've mentioned green finance, and I'm going to make a distinction between green finance versus green commerce, which I think is an important distinction to to make. Um, so uh, of all of the ecosystem markets operating in the UK at the moment, uh, carbon markets uh, are the most mature, um, and they will typically get you the uh, the, the highest price. 
um, uh, I understand if, you, if you've got the right site, and this is a very big if uh, for biodiversity in that game, that can be very profitable in England. Um, and so uh, this is definitely not something to be sniffed at uh, when it comes to Scotland, worth uh, looking at seeing how those markets evolve and how valuable that might be. Uh, and with that in mind, given what I said in answer to that last question about additionality, uh, you may want to actually zone your land um, and say to yourself, okay, so um, I'm, I'm about to put all of this into uh, into a carbon market, uh, but actually are there some, some real sites that, that could be restored um, and connected to uh, high nature value sites um, uh, where I could actually do that compensation um, for, for a developer? Um, so so great. So we've we've uh, we've got carbon markets as the most mature, um, and um, if you look at uh, what what these look like, so I, as I said, as you said, I'm on the executive executive board for the Peatland Code. So those are the, the figures I'm most familiar with, um, and uh, the the vast majority of this is, um, in fact, all of this at the moment is pending issuance units. So this is forward selling of the carbon uh, units. Um, and just the nature of these projects and how long it takes to get to the various verification points um, that's coming in future. Uh, and uh, and on average, these pending issuance units are selling for between 15 and 20 pounds per ton. Uh, but we are now regularly seeing sales in the, uh, in the, in the 20s, uh, up to 30 pounds per ton. Uh, for pending issuance units, and we would expect them to be worth significantly more once those are actually verified and they become peatland carbon units. Uh, and so for context, um, a, a ditch block blocking um, uh, sites, uh, you might get um, kind of worst case scenario, uh, two to three tons uh, per hectare per year. Um, uh, this could be in the region of 20 tons per hectare per year uh, for a site that is badly damaged, um, where you've got barren eroding peat that, that you are restoring um, uh, back to what we would call a modified uh, state. Um, uh, and so, uh, so we're talking potentially significant uh, income streams that, that you can get from this. Uh, the the question, though, is uh, the, an implicit question is 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 how we what we then do with that. Um, and what I would recommend to people is to take a green commerce approach rather than a green finance approach. There are investors, uh, and I uh, have recently heard of two investors coming to Scotland looking at peatland carbon alone with uh, a budget of billions to invest. Um, and we can't supply the, the pipeline of projects anywhere near. Uh, that's a major problem. Um, yeah, there is there are huge amounts of, of, of investment funding looking for green investment nowadays. Um, and there's a big uh, supply problem um, to, to actually give those investors what they're looking for. But I think it's really important that we remember uh, these are investors who are looking for a return on investment. And what they're wanting to do is to load you up with debt <laughs> that you then effectively have to pay back. And so uh, what I would encourage you to think about is to think about your carbon like any other commodity. Uh, and yeah, in the peatland carbon market, woodland carbon market, I might forward sell that in the same way that I might forward sell my barley. <laughs> um, and um, 
and do so knowing that it might in fact have been worth a lot more. Uh, although actually I recommend avoiding forward selling carbon as far as possible for the very reason that these markets are likely to rise substantially in value. So uh, if you need that upfront cash, um, uh, then um, then you've got two options. Uh, I sell my pending issuance units uh, and I sell enough of them to pay for the additional upfront costs I need, accepting that, I, that whoever buys them may well sell them uh, at double or more the price once they convert into verifiable units and, and I can't I, and I won't see any of that um, but uh, but but the alternative is that uh, that I actually take out uh, a loan um, or I approach an investment fund um, who is willing to give me that upfront cash uh, in return for something in, re in return for that and that was it is what I would go for um, uh, because I make some assumptions here uh, but, uh, but looking at the way these markets are, are headed um, uh, I can build in uh, a return on investment uh, for for that um, for that investor uh, over my thirty year uh, Peatland Code project, for example, um, uh, on the basis of the projections of the units I'm going to be able to sell. And if I do that based on how much the pending issuance units are worth at the moment, uh, and that more than covers um, uh, the, the the return on investment that that investor wants and gives me a profit on top, chances are there's going to be a way bigger profit for me if I hold on to that carbon and sell that at a at a later date um uh, and uh, when it comes to these kind of commerce uh, markets uh, rather rather than investment markets a, a model that's wor worth looking at is something called landscape enterprise networks and what's really valuable about these is that they integrate across multiple ecosystem markets. So uh, there's a num number of these now operating in the UK. Uh, they're moving into Scotland now, a number of these under development in Scotland. And uh, one example that, that I've studied in particular, and um, this was working uh, with Nestle to uh, reduce uh, climate risks to their milk supply chain going to their Dalton fa factory in the north of England, um, combined with United Utilities who wanted to see re a reduction uh, in diffuse pollution going into uh, into their water. Uh, both of those investors willing to pay uh, to uh, to get uh, milk quality and animal metal, animal health and s s resilient supply chain benefits in the case of uh, Nestle, water quality benefits in the case of United Utilities, a negotiation then with a collective of farmers uh, and like any price negotiation uh, you get to a point where the investors are yeah uh, well the, the the buyers i should say in this case we, we are buying we are procuring these benefits that the buyers are happy yep yeah, that's a price i'm willing to pay uh, it's going to cost me less uh, to buy these reductions in diffuse pollution at source and it's going to cost me to clean them up in the united utilities case that looks like good value to me uh, and for the farmer yeah i'm willing to do that if you're willing to pay me that much brilliant win-win and what we're doing now is we're not having to load these landscapes up with any form of debt it is a commercial transaction uh, you're a buyer i'm a seller you've got something uh, you, you want i've got something that you want uh, we, we can exchange an agreed price on that um and so finally, just to say that this is not to, to, to then say that there isn't a role for investment. Um, and I think there is an important role. So it could be because you need those upfront costs. But most importantly, most significantly in terms of Scotland is the role that this finance can play in combination with public funding. So Scotland is actually the most advanced uh, in terms of any of the UK countries in pioneering this work. And this is known as blended finance. And we're pioneering, pioneering this, first of all, in relation to peatland carbon markets. 
Uh, and, uh, and the idea here is to say, well, great, we've got a bit of money, people in action, uh, that we've uh, committed to this um, 200 million over 10 years, if I remember rightly, in Scotland, something a lot of that order of magnitude. But that is actually a drop in the ocean compared to what is needed. So instead of just using that as public subsidy going in to do this um, uh, uh, for the cost of the restoration plus any income foregone, which is not a great deal, but a lot of people have done that on that basis, that's fine. Uh, let's do this now in a way that we use that public funding to de-risk and leverage private investment at the scale that could actually restore all of people, Scotland's peat bogs, at least uh, for, for the, the landowners who want to go down that line. And because we're working with the markets now, we can pay a, a, a healthy price for this. And we can build this in ways that uh, the landowners can hold on to those carbon units if they want to uh, and keep control over those commodities. Uh, and so the, the kind of mechanisms that we're, that we're looking at are, for example, what's known as a floor price guarantee, uh, where uh, I, as a landowner, go into this uh, and I accept uh, that I will get a minimum uh, of this amount per tonne of carbon. And I've done the sums and I'm very happy to get that minimum. Uh, so great. I know at minimum that's that's what I'll get. Uh, but uh, if uh, when it comes to selling these, I can get more on the carbon market than I can sell to the carbon market. And if for whatever reason the market has crashed, uh, then I still get that guaranteed minimum payment. And that's the point at which the government pays and uses its funding. But uh, assuming that the carbon markets continue as we expect, uh, you will always be able to get more than that minimum guarantee, which means the government money doesn't get spent. And all it does is get recycled to then into a new round of private uh, funding uh, to uh, to raise the funds uh, to pay for the upfront works with that return on investment that is built into your price calculations, which then means that investors get their return on investment, uh, replacing what would be people in action at the moment uh, in terms of all of the money to pay for the capital uh, works upfront. Uh, so they're happy, <laughs> you're happy, uh, because um, you're getting uh, an income from that carbon at a healthy rate, which is at minimum that guaranteed price, but hopefully above that. And government's happy because if this works, they don't actually have to spend any money. Uh, so you've got this triple win. So that's the kind of thing that we're looking at now in terms of really scaling these markets. Uh, and, and this is what I think is our best hope to overcome the supply problem. Uh, so this is something we've looked at now for a long time in the Peatland Co. We've known we have a problem <laughs> for a long time uh, where uh, there are way more people wanting to buy Peatland carbon than there are landowners willing to put their land into the Peatland Code. And what I've argued from the outset is that the problem is not the Peatland Code per se, but it's the financial model. And it's not just how much uh, are those investors willing to pay, but it is uh, the, the contractual basis on, upon which that is done and how that manages risks. So do you think that farmers' needs and business needs, private investors' expectations and science, are they all adding up at the moment? Are they all working together? Or is that something that is for that will happen in the future? Um. So the, the science uh, we know adds up in terms of woodland carbon markets uh, and in terms of uh, the peatland carbon market. We took a decision to move as fast as the science in the peatland code. Uh, many people told us that you cannot do a peatland code because we don't know everything yet. Uh, and our response was, uh, yes, that's right, but we know enough for blanket bogs and certain types of restoration that we can, on a limited basis, uh, for these types of eligible land start. Uh, we are about to launch uh, version two of the Peatland Code with Lock. It will be out by the time this goes out. 
and uh, and we are extending now to Fenland peat, uh, to uh, agricultural peats uh, where we're growing carrots in East Anglia, for example. If you can raise the water table, uh, we were extending it uh, in pilot or trial mode to paludiculture, which is um, the growing of, uh, of of wet agricultural crops. Um, so reeds, for example, and uh, bioenergy crops and such like uh, that can grow with the water pretty much at the at the at the uh, at the soil surface. So uh, the, 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 we, we are moving as fast as the science. Uh, the question, the, the worry, though, is, as I said, that we have a number of, uh, of, of schemes out there, uh, especially, uh, I would argue, in, uh, in the soil carbon markets uh, that uh, are, are suggesting that pretty much any kind of regenerative agriculture will be good for the climate uh, and therefore counts. Uh, and the problem is that the evidence is quite clear. It depends, uh, A, on the practice that you're implementing, uh, B, uh, on the context in which you're implementing that in, and crucially, your soil. Uh, how much carbon is in that soil already? What is your starting point? How depleted is that? Uh, and um, and so that 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 variation in sites means that, that you have to be very careful about assessing. Uh, yeah, actually, does this uh, is this going to work here? And in some cases, is this going to work? Full stop. When you look at the literature, you'll see that certain practices. Yeah, there is equivocal evidence. In some studies, they say it works. In others, they say it doesn't work. Uh, and so one of the things that we've put into our minimum requirements is to have an evidential basis based on the peer-reviewed literature that the practices that you deem as eligible, uh, that there is an evidential basis, but also then in that monitoring, uh, verification, reporting kind of ele element uh, to your code, uh, that you're doing all of those kind of calibrations per site. Um, and it's not just I'm going to apply a model that works everywhere. I'm actually looking at the site and checking, is this really going to deliver what we want? Uh, and so my worry is that, uh, that some of these schemes are going faster than the science permits. Uh, and that is a worry uh, that we're going to try and clamp down on through the the the, uh, the, uh, the application of these minimum requirements. And of course, they are voluntary. You don't have to get accredited to them. But uh, I would certainly be warning people off schemes that uh, are not accredited to to this, unless they're things like VARA uh, that already operate internationally and uh, that are of high standard. But as I've said, um, supply and demand does not add up. Um, there are more investors looking for nature, uh, nature positive investments, especially carbon markets, than there are farmers willing to go into these markets. So we've got a major supply problem across the board. Uh, and uh, and my mission is not to convince farmers to just go into these schemes. Uh, there is a supply problem for a reason. Most farmers are being advised not to go into them yet. Um, uh, and uh, and that's because they are either not uh, advisors are not happy about the rigor of the schemes. They're uh, worried about uh, the the consequences down the line in terms of insetters uh, requiring this as part of contracts. Um, uh, or yeah, this is just it's not mature enough yet. Um, uh, this 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 is high risk. Uh, it, it's not a good enough deal yet. Um, wait until a better deal because there are better deals coming down the line. So lots of advice to hold back, um, and that would be my advice as well. But I do think we need to temper this with well, yeah, we're going as fast as we can in terms of increasing the rigor of these markets, getting the financial and contractual models right. 
Uh, but uh, if you want to start now, uh, we do need to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Uh, and as I said, there are things we can do. As long as you do that baselining first, uh, you are clear you are doing this uh, for climate benefit uh, with the idea of having uh, a carbon market in the future. And make, I would actually, this point I didn't mention, make sure you've got that in writing somewhere. So talk to your advisor, get them to record this. You are doing these things with a carbon market in mind. Uh, because uh, precedents from the Woodland Carbon Code and the Peatland Code, where we have allowed that retrospective uh, registration of projects, you have to have an evidence trail that says, I was doing this for climate benefit in anticipation of a carbon market. And if you haven't got that evidence, uh, then it's hard to demonstrate additionality and you may not be able to do that retrospective um, registration. So you can start now, but make sure that you do it with advice, with a paper trail, and with a baseline. Um, and, and that you're aware that, that you probably are increasing your risks of being able to actually access those markets somewhat by being an early mover. This is about making sure that we have our eye on what is most important, which is transforming our economy, transforming our behaviors, reducing emissions at source. But the amount of money that is available for this means that we can make a measurable difference to our fight against climate change through these kinds of projects. And we can do so at scale. And because they are nature-based solutions, this is not just about the climate, it's about the biodiversity, it's about the water, it's, it's about the communities, um, if designed well. And so what excites me is the opportunity to think for the first time about how we integrate across different ecosystem markets so that your carbon isn't at the expense of your biodiversity, how we integrate across private and public markets for these public goods, and how we make sure that we have a policy and governance system that doesn't just allow these markets to run amok, but enables them to do the heavy lifting of, uh, of transforming our countryside, our farms, uh, and tackling climate change, but in a way that has as many co-benefits and other public benefits as possible. That's brilliant. Thanks a lot for coming on today, Mark. And I said, as I said, all links will be listed in the show notes of the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. If you want to hear more from Mark and learn more about what he's up to, including his podcast, links to his website and his own podcast series can be found in the show notes. And thank you, the listeners, for joining us on this episode and throughout this Natural Capital series. If you have enjoyed listening, please like, subscribe and follow our podcast wherever you listen to them. Leave us a review to let us know how we are doing and get in touch if you want to find out more. The Natural Capital podcast series will be back later this year. Please get in touch if you have any topics or case studies you'd like us to talk about. You can listen to our other shows such as Thrill of the Hill, Crofting Matters and Stop Talk on any podcast provider. You can also listen back to all other episodes in this series and access a wide range of other resources on the Fast Sounds pages and Farm Advisory Service website. Links to these are provided below. I was your host Rachel Smiley. Our producer is Ian Boyd, editor Ross McKenzie and executive producer Kerry Hammond part of the Farm Advisory Service in association with the Scottish Government. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.